Let us hear the word of God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. From Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 4. Paul writes from prison. He has been uh, imprisoned for the gospel, and he is awaiting his execution. He writes to Timothy in Ephesus. As for me, I am already being poured out as a libation and offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful in my ministry. I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and, above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him back for his deeds. You also must be aware of him, for he is strongly opposed to our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the message might fully be proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let us pray. Your word, O oh God, your holy word, your ancient word, your living word, has fed and sustained your people from one generation to another. May it be so again now in this day and in this hour and in this people. We pray in the name of the one who comes, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Recently, my sister, brother, and I signed the papers to enroll my 88-year-old mother into hospice care. As you may or may not know, my mom has been taking that slow walk away from herself for about eight years as dementia has settled into her brain. Since we walked this road, have walked this road with a number of you, getting to this stage of the disease did not come as a surprise to us. What did surprise us was how it felt to sign those papers. At first, it felt like we were signing her death warrant, though as we came to see in the following days, not much had actually changed in her condition. We came to understand that we were not hurrying her death as much as we were clearing the path for her to move forward into life when the time comes. When it does come, hers will be a good death. We know that all deaths are not, and so we are grateful. She has lived a full life, she has loved and been loved, and we are believers, so we can get out of her way as she moves forward into something divine love has made possible and beautiful. We had help getting to this place of peace by my mom and dad. Years ago, when they were about my age, they had drawn up advanced directives. That is, they had drawn up instructions about their desires and priorities for care at the end of life. Even 25 years ago, my parents were concerned at the percentage of both personal and social health care expenditures that are consumed in the last 12 months of life. At the moment, according to the Journal of the American Medical Association, 25% of Medicare spending happens in that last year. My mom and dad wanted us to take no extraordinary and expensive measures to prolong their lives. So they told us what they wanted us to do when we came with them to this chapter. Don't get the wrong idea here. We didn't have some beautiful conversation illumined by light streaming from the heavens as we talked about their lives and what mattered to them, their hopes and regrets, the convictions of their heart and the vision in their souls of life to come. The advanced directors at directives just arrived in the mail one day from their attorney. And we kids, we never outgrew being the kids, respectfully and shyly said, got it, we'll, we'll hang on to this, and made some attempt at a lighthearted comment. Looking back, I am sorry that I didn't try to go through the door that that envelope opened and ask about those things, about how life looked from where they stood, what they expected in the life to come as people of faith, what wisdom and trepidation and insight they could share looking back 
looking ahead. I don't dwell on that regret for too long, though, because the truth is, if I had asked, they probably would have shut the door on that kind of talk. That wasn't the kind of thing they were inclined to talk about with us kids. But why not? I'm not even sure they talked about it with each other very much. But at least they talked about it with their physician, their pastor, and attorney. It was a start of the life-giving conversation nobody wants to have. And it made the conversation my siblings and I had 25 years later a lot easier. So that now, even from death and dementia, they were looking out for us. Here in this second letter to Timothy, Paul is looking out for the young man who has grown to be a son to him. He addresses Timothy in each letter, my loyal child, my beloved child. Paul is looking his death squarely in the eye as he sits in a Roman prison waiting for his death. And Paul is not flinching. He's talking about it. We do not know how Timothy is receiving this letter. Does he follow up on the door that Paul has opened? Or does he sidestep it like many adult children? Or even slam it shut like many aging parents when their own children try to introduce the topic? We don't know Timothy's part of the conversation, but we do know Paul's. And it is a beautiful gift to not only Timothy, but also to us. What is Paul thinking as he waits in the valley of the shadow of death? As he writes what he knows must be the last words he will share with his child, what matters to him? The letter is full of encouragement. He knows Timothy will be carrying on in a fearsome world of tumult and even danger for Timothy. It's likely that Timothy will have to share in the kind of suffering that Paul now undergoes. Rekindle the gift God has given you, son, he writes. God did not give you a spirit of cowardice, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. Paul gives advice, exhortations. He's coaching Timothy. Hold fast to the standard of sound teaching you have heard from me, he says. Be strong, my child, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And I wonder what prompted this bit of advice to Timothy. Don't be quarrelsome. Be kind. The letter is also full of love. I long to see you that I might be filled with joy, he writes. Do you think Paul was the kind of guy who could say that thing face to face, or did his love come easier in the mail? No matter. What mattered is that it came before it was too late. And then Paul turns to some self-reflection particularly in the verses we just heard. 
Here is the real treasure buried in this letter. In their travels together and to this point in the letter, Paul has been showing Timothy how to live. Now he shows him how to die. The time of my departure has come, he says, matter-of-factly. It's not as if this is a secret. He can speak of it. And notice the word he uses, departure. Paul views his death as a leaving, as on a journey, a journey that he has been moving toward for years, since his birth, in fact. And he is getting ready to depart. Paul knows where he is going. He is confident of his destination. From now on, he writes, there is reserved for me a crown of righteousness. Paul is using here an image from the Olympic Games. Paul envisions his destination is like the winner's circle of those games after the race. That is the circle where anyone who has run the race goes and receives a crown, whether they came in first or last. And he will be surrounded by the saints in the stadium who cheer and welcome him as Christ places on his brow that crown. Paul is not in a hurry to get to his destination and he's not doing anything to speed up the process. He expects to be around when the cold weather sets in. Bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, he instructs Timothy. He's not giving up or checking out. He leaves the time of his departure in God's hands. And while he waits, even in the valley of the shadow, He continues to live. He is still engaged and interested and concerned and connected to his friends and co-workers. He's still cultivating community among the sisters and brothers in faith. In the verses after I finished reading today, just a couple verses that says some greetings. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the family of Onesiphorus. Oh, and Eustace, Prudens, Linus, and Claudia send their greetings to you. Paul is still working. Bring thy books and the parchments. He's still seeking ways to be part of Jesus' movement, even though he must adapt his work to fit his changed abilities. Paul knows that the work is not finished. He knows that it is not his job to finish it. He knows that he is only a worker. He is not the master builder. He is a minister, not the Messiah. He is a prophet of a future that is not his own. But there is a kind of liberation in that knowledge, knowing that he has done what he can to lay the foundations. There is a freedom in knowing that The finished product is not up to him. As he said in another letter, God will bring this good work to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He knows that there are others coming behind him to carry on the work. His labor in the gospel has not been in vain. 
Paul is doing his own spiritual work, too. He looks within. He notices the wounds that he carries, names the people who have hurt him, like Damas, who has abandoned him. Paul considers <clears throat> his disappointments. Not everything has gone his way. And now as he nears the end of his life, his co-workers have scattered, maybe with good reason. Tychicus is over in Ephesus, and Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus is in Dalmatia. He'd rather have them all there, together. But he knows that they have a life of their own and work of their own. Still, he misses them. He misses them. And he has enemies, among them Alexander the coppersmith, who did him great harm, and who could still do harm to the sisters and brothers. There have always been naysayers, always been people who challenged his authority and teaching, people who made him suffer. But Paul does the spiritual work of laying down the scorecard. The Lord will have to take care of that, he says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. This is Paul, distilled. Passions tempered. Ambitions yielded. Perspective seasoned. So much is falling away. But what remains is distilled to compassion wisdom, grace, and love. Paul shows us what it looks like to do the good work of living as those who are prepared to die, shedding unnecessary weight, cherishing what is precious, recognizing what we have contributed and carrying on in any way that is still available to us, and in our deepest selves, tapping into a steadfast and confident hope that the destination for the journey is already guaranteed, paid for, and sealed in Christ. Talking about dying does not mean that we are hurrying it along. It means we are trying to be as intentional at the end of our days as we have been in the midst of them. It means we want our dying to reflect as much our priorities and beliefs and loves as our living has. Talking about death does not mean we are giving up on life. It means we are believers who are confident that there is more to come beyond our last heartbeat, and we are preparing to go forth to embrace what we are assured of in Christ, whenever and wherever it appears. Lori Erickson wrote a book, Near the Exit, Travels with the Not-So-Grim Reaper. She writes, it's not as if it's a big secret that we're all going to die. It's just that for many of us, most of the time, it seems like an event that's going to happen to someone else. Friends, 
It's going to happen to us. One comedian has said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And it is true that many of us are not afraid of death. It is the dying that is daunting. But maybe if we can learn to talk about it, dying will lose some of its power over us. Over the centuries and the years, some of our mothers and fathers in faith have shown us how to go through the valley of the shadow with a lighter tread. I've told the Bible study recently about one woman who showed me. Mary Hilton was put on hospice care because, though her mind was keen, her body was failing. Mary had fed on scripture all her life, and when she learned she was about to depart, she was confident of the destination. So Mary held a party for herself. She called it a bon voyage party. She sent out invitations. People were invited to come by her home. She set it up kind of like an open house. You could come and go during the hours. And when they did, she gave them something from her library, something from her home as a parting gift. There was festivity in the air, music, food, and the kind of expectation you have when you are about to embark on a journey to a place you have been longing to return to for years. What could we do with her in that moment but stand on the shore and cheer, bidding her adieu to God, bon voyage, dying well. It's the life-giving conversation. We need to find a way to have with the people we love so that when God's time comes for them or for us to depart, we can accompany them to the dock and stand on the shore and rejoice. Amen. Let us stand and using the words that have come to us through the centuries, from believers who have gone before. Let us affirm our faith together as one body. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.